Um, I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Once you get there, I would like to pray. I feel the, the weight of this opportunity. It's a new series on the church at Antioch, a three-part series that we will do in conjunction with our strategic plan. Unless our strategic plan is rooted in the text of Scripture, it will fail miserably. And so we look to the church at Antioch as an example, and I think many of the things that we will see, many of the essentials we will emphasize in our strategic plan, God enabled this church to perform thousands of years ago for His glory. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before You today, we come humbly. You are the Creator God. You are the sustainer. You give life and breath and health. It's before You, Lord, that we come and we ask for You to do a significant work. As I come as a preacher of Scripture, I come with the meditation of the Apostle Paul on my mind, who said when he went to Corinth that he did so not with lofty speech or wisdom, but that he was there in weakness, fear, and much trembling. This is my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power so that faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Lord, as we consider this church at Antioch, I pray that any faith that is produced today would not depend or spring forth from man's wisdom, gifts, or abilities, but through your almighty power. We pray that your spirit would work in our hearts, convict us about sin, encourage us to persevere. Lord, we need your blessing today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> As we start into this study, I want to ask you, how or what is the best way to assess the spiritual vitality or strength of a church? How does one assess the spiritual vitality of a church? Well, I'm sure that there are many church strategists, you know, the experts, who would love to tell us who would love to assess just how effective and vibrant we are as a congregation. The problem, however, is I don't know if we should trust them. I don't know if we should trust them. What should be important to us, however, what we should be more interested in is the way God evaluates the spiritual well-being and vitality of churches. And make no mistake about it, he does assess churches. Do you remember what God said to the churches in Revelation? There were seven of these. Imagine 
each one of them now standing before the bar of God. To the church at Ephesus, he says, I know your works, your toil, your patience and endurance. I know you're unending or enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. To the church of Pergamum, the members of that church standing before God, he says, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you do not deny my faith. But I have a few things against you. You have some that hold to the teachings of Balaam, and you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The church of Thyatira before God, every one of these texts, the, the, the author of Revelation has Jesus saying, I know you, or I know your works. He says to Thyatira, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to commit I, uh, immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. The church of Sardis standing before the throne of God, God, Jesus says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. To the church of Philadelphia, he says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. To the church of Laodicea, Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Men and women, in this divine assessment of seven churches, six had major areas of compromise, impurity, false teaching, spiritual deadness, and a lack of spiritual vitality. It is only the poor and the persecuted church of Smyrna in the book of Revelation that does not draw the judgment of God. And so if, if this sampling of God's evaluations holds true to how he assesses churches today, we should humbly come to God and ask him, what more do you want from us Colonial Baptist Church. What more can we give? In what other ways can we look like Jesus, both individually and corporately as an assembly? And so that's my prayer, that as we come to the church of Antioch, we would come humbly and know that there's probably things for us to learn. As I'm involved in some of the counseling and discipleship of this church, I know, I know there are things for our assembly to learn. And so, in order to grow, I want to lift up to you a good example. I want to lift up to you one of the most significant acts of God done in the first century, the birth and the ministry of the church at Antioch. 
and I want us to learn from them over the course of the next three Sundays. The old commentator William Barclay uh, calls what he finds in this er narrative in Acts 11, he calls it one of the greatest events in history. I. Howard Marshall, the old commentator just recently passed away, he writes this, he says, there can be no doubt that the formation of the church at Antioch was an event of great significance in the expansion of the church and the mission to the Gentiles. No doubt, men and women, the church at Antioch was a church that changed the world. So please don't have deaf ears today. Listen well. Listen with a humble heart, ready to grow, to recommit, to persevere. Over the course of the next three weeks, we're going to be looking to see what the book of Acts has to say about the church at Antioch. I'm going to proclaim to you six characteristics of a church that changes the world. This morning, we'll look at three of them, the first three in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 24. Now, to give us context, though, I want to read Acts 19, 11 through the end of the chapter. So look in your Bible and see this exciting church. Verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So... The disciples determined, every one, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So as we'll look at verses 19 through 24 today, I want to emphasize three characteristics of a church that changes the world. First, a church that changes the world is energized by faithful believers, by the faithfulness of believers who perhaps are anonymous, non-prominent, but faithful. To see this clearly, I want to consider three things about what Luke says in verses 19 and 20, the first two verses. First, I want to consider uh, where this narrative is taking place. Luke describes the scene here as taking place in Antioch that is located in Syria. Antioch was a capital city, an important city, the third largest and most significant city in the entire Roman Empire. It is third largest to only Rome and Alexandria in Egypt. 
Antioch was a significant city. It's the third largest. It's like the Chicago, right? New York, Los Angeles, Chicago. It's one of the most urban of the ancient cities, full of people, full of godliness, godlessness, full of crime, and full of opportunity for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The city in Antioch is located on a flat plain along the Arontes River. It is some 300 miles straight north from Jerusalem. This is where the story takes place. Now, I want you to consider with me as well, just for a moment, who the main characters of verses 19 and 20 are. Who are the main characters? Open Bible quiz. You can look down there, you know, look at it in your Bible. So it's taking place in Antioch, and the main characters are introduced to us first in verse 19. Luke describes them this way. They are those who are scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Okay. So these main characters, you better be ready for this, these main characters are not named. They're only described. No names. So there's some who are scattered because of persecution arose over Stephen. In verse 20, it's narrowed down some, and the name or the description is this, some of them, some of them who are from Cyprus and Cyrene. In Acts chapter 8, Luke informed his readers that many Jewish believers were forced to leave Jerusalem over the persecution that arised uh, around the same time as the martyrdom of Stephen. And so Jerusalem believers are forced to scatter all over the world. In verse 20, we see some of these believers who were originally from Cyprus and Cyrene found their way to Antioch. They're the main characters in this first part of the narrative. Now, I want you to notice what these faithful, unnamed believers do. The text describes it with two participles. Okay, so in verse 19, what they do is they are speaking, and in verse 20, they are proclaiming or preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what they do. This is pretty simple. Now, there's some development, I think, that takes place between these two verses. And in verse 19, the larger group that leaves Jerusalem starts out by only speaking to the Jews. You see that? You remember Paul's mantra in Romans? He says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Remember that? The Jewish mantra at this time was to the Jew first and never to the Greeks. Verse 19. Okay. But there's a massive shift that occurs in verse 20. A predominant shift, which is why I think why some of those old commentators called this one of the greatest events in the history of the church or the history of the world. Because some Jewish Christians decide to open up the gospel and proclaim the gospel to, the text says, verse 20, to Hellenists also. Hellenists also. But we have to dig in a little bit. Who are Hellenists? The word Hellenists can be a bit confusing. It, it in many texts, refers to Greek-speaking, catch this, Jews, many texts, and Acts affords us many of those examples. A lot of times when you talk about Hellenists, you're still talking about Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, not Aramaic Jews, but Jews. But its actual usage of this word Hellenist sometimes is broader than that. I think it's better to leave it more open than that. So that the word Hellenist can and does refer in the New Testament other writings to any Greek-speaking person regardless of ethnicity. Okay? So this can be referring to either Jews or Gentiles who are speaking Greek and embracing Hellenistic or Greek culture. And that's where you have to look to the context and see if it narrows it any more for us, and I think it might. 
I think it might. When you look at the end of verse 21 and the way it's described there, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned. Okay, this should not be, like in some of your English translations, it should not be translated, they believed and turned. That'd be, too, be doing too much with the grammar here. Better, it's those who believed turn. The ones who formerly had belief turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think what may have happened here is that these Jewish believers come to Antioch, they begin proclaiming the gospel to Greek-speaking Gentile God-fearers. People like Cornelius, who is mentioned in the chapters before, who uh, had a reverence and a belief in God, but then hears about Christ. I think that's what happens. And so when these believers, right, they believe in God, hear about Jesus Christ from these anonymous men, they turn to the Lord. See that in your Bible? Turn to the Lord. I want you to know how remarkable then this is. Regardless of their God first or not, they're Gentiles. The gospel is making inroads among the nations. What you need to understand about the city of Antioch was that the city of Antioch was a city of mixed ethnicities. There were at least 18 different ethnic quarters in the city. Archaeologists have demonstrated that there were even people who came the whole way from Persia, India, and China who were living in first century Antioch. It was, it was a city of much diversity many ethnicities. And so when the Roman ruler who started the city in 300 BC built the city, he built walls. He started with walls around the outside of the city to protect its inhabitants from the outsiders. But his walls did not stop there. He also built walls uh, within the walls because he knew that every ethnic culture normally thinks that it is superior to other cultures. And so the city had walls within its walls to protect these ethnic groups from fighting and attacking each other when there would be misunderstandings and miscommunications down in the marketplace. Walls within walls. But now, for the very first time in a new way, the walls were being broken down. Jews were penetrating the walls and speaking and preaching. That's what the text says. Speaking and preaching Jesus to Gentiles, and a unity was being formed. Friendships were being developed, and Jew and Gentile are now worshiping together in each other's homes. Isn't that awesome? Is it? Okay, thank you. That's awesome. Jew and Gentile. It's such a rare phenomenon that the people, the city, they didn't know what to do with this. And so they had to create a new way to identify these people. We can't refer to them as Jews anymore. They're Gentiles anymore. Let's, let's call them Christ ones. Christ ones. Jews and Gentiles worshiping side 
by side. Now, do not lose focus on what these anonymous believers did. They spoke and they preached the gospel, breaking down ethnic and social barriers because they realized that they were commanded to go and make disciples of all nations. That's what these immigrants did. Consider for a moment these men who come from Cyprus and Cyrene. Do you think that they had jobs? Do you think they had jobs and ways of working for a living to care for themselves? Do you think that they had families to care for? Do you think they had those sort of family pressures and concerns? Do you think other things were crashing down on their calendars, like their schedules, like caring for their homes? Do you think they had homes? The answer to all these would be yes, but men and women, they did not let any of those things trump their call to open their mouth and speak and preach Jesus. So let's learn from the founders of the church at Antioch. A church that changes the world must have faithful believers who speak and preach Jesus to every people around them. And if we look at the next five years, if, if, if we can't do this, it doesn't matter what plan you create, it'd be of no good. It's important to note that the first report of significant growth and blessing in this city occurred long before any prominent or significant person was ministering in this city. Look at verse 21. Look at the end of verse 21. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. I don't have time to show you, but this is a very important marker for the book of Acts. Acts is formed around 12 blessing statements. You can find all throughout the book, and here's one of them. A great number of people turned to the Lord. And the point I want to make is that's well before Barnabas or Saul, who later becomes Paul, ever even arrives in the city. A great number believe and turn to the Lord, who believe turn to the Lord. Later on, verse 24, you see a second blessing statement, which is remarkable. Two blessing statements in this one little narrative. Verse 24, for he's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. That's after the ministry of Barnabas. But the, the point I make is, well before Barnabas ever gets, this, gets there, this work is starting with unnamed believers, anonymous men from Cyprus and Cyrene. We might ask this question, who are we? to make advances for the gospel in the Hampton Roads. We have no prominent evangelical celebrities among us. But take note, God does not need newsworthy, headline-grabbing celebrities, authors of best-selling books, presidents of Fortune 500 companies to change the world. No, he can make significant gospel gains with non-prominent, unnamed, faithful believers who speak and preach to their city. Using the analogy of football on a Sunday is dangerous. But imagine, or just think of your favorite NFL sports team. You can have the best, most loyal fans, and we could argue about which city that is, Pittsburgh, of course, being number one. <laughs> you can have the best, most loyal fans. You can have the best management, the sharpest general manager in that sport. You can have the best coach. 
But if the team does not show up for practice, if the team is not disciplined to train themselves, and if the team does not participate, participate in the games, then you will lose every time. Every time. So a church that changes the world is energized by faithful believers. Unless believers are faithful, a church won't do anything of significance for God, because the church is the believers. Moving along, there's a second characteristic of this church that I see in verse 21. Verse 21 there, and I want to read it with you. It says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. As we consider the second characteristic of a church that changes the world, I would describe it this way. A church like this is blessed by the presence and the power of God. In tradition of the Old Testament, Luke describes this mighty advance of the gospel in Antioch as being a result of, a result of the blessing and the favor of God. The church that changes the world is blessed by the presence and power of God. It's in the Old Testament that this little phrase you see in this passage, the hand of the Lord originates. It's an expression, it's a very common metaphor in the Old Testament Scripture, and I think of extreme importance to note, I don't have time to look at all the occurrences of it in the Old Testament, but it's extremely important to note how God's hand is said to be with people in the Old Testament and into the New. On the negative side of things is when the hand of the Lord is said to be against people, against people. In the Old Testament, this, this occurrence, uh, the hand of the Lord being against people, occurs many different times, and it often speaks of severe and sometimes immediate judgment at God's mercy. The hand of the Lord was against the Israelite from, Israelites from time to time. It was against Judah. It was against other nations like the Philistines. And so that metaphor pictures God acting against those who disobey Him. And uh, men and women, it is a very dreadful thing for the hand of God to come against you. You don't want that. But on the positive side, when the hand of the Lord is with, or sometimes translated on someone, it is awesome in a good way, in a good way. When this happens in the Scripture, it often brings amazing breakthroughs so, for instance, when the Lord's hand was with Elijah, 1 Kings 18.46, God brought rain after a great famine. You remember the story? Elijah prayed for rain, and he looked seven different times until finally he saw a small cloud the size of a man's fist in the horizon, and from that cloud and others that accompanied it, God brought massive rains to help the people. God's hand was with Elijah when he prayed. That happened. When the hand of the Lord was with Ezra, Ezra chapter 7, three times in Ezra 7, it talks about God's hand being on or with Ezra. When this was true of Ezra, God led the king to grant Ezra all of his requests to beautify the house of the Lord. And when this was true, when the Lord's hand was with Ezra and his, his ministry of the word then flourished among the people. We can take time to look at it, the prophet Ezekiel as well. In Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 3, one of the very first things you learn about that prophet is that the hand of God was with him. 
gave him many prophetic visions that would uh, help the children of Israel in fantastic ways. The hand of the Lord was also with or on Elisha and in the New Testament on John the Baptist. In all these cases, the hand of the Lord brought breakthrough. In Antioch, it was the hand of the Lord that brought an evangelistic breakthrough. Sure, unnamed men and women, faithful, speaking, preaching, but ultimately God. This was not of men, it was of God. So will God's hand be with us at Colonial Baptist Church? We most certainly don't want it to be against us. It's a good question to ask. Will it be with us? On this occasion, I think it's important to give you a few warnings from the commentators just in light of the fact that we're giving strategic plans. Here's a warning that comes from Clinton Arnold. I'll read it here and you just follow along. He says, church leaders often spend a great deal of time and effort searching for new strategies for doing effective outreach in their communities. Books, conferences, and seminars prevent a variety of models for reaching a neighborhood with a gospel. Luke reminds us here that it's not so much the strategy that's most important, but the work of God. In doing outreach, our greatest concern should be, is the hand of the Lord with us? So I call Colonial Baptist Church, is God's hand with us? Are we concerned about that? Do we want that? Warning comes from another German scholar, Eckhard Schnabel, a Trinity, Deerfield, Illinois. He says this, this emphasis does not mean the strategies and tactical plans are unnecessary, but it does mean that they must never form the basis of the confidence of missionaries and pastors. They rely on God, not programs or plans. In a society in which a can-do spirit is part of the national psyche, ministers of the gospel constantly need to remind themselves that they can do nothing unless God himself is at work through his spirit in the hearts and minds of people. Not plans, not strategies. We need God. Man, those are really long quotes. It's hard to remember. Yeah, here's a really good one I like, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Old preacher, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, when God acts, he can do more in a minute than man and his organizing can do in 50 years. I don't know about you. I don't have 50 years of Colonial Baptist Church, maybe 20, and I certainly don't want to be organizing scheming on my own strength when God could accomplish everything I tried in those 20 years in one minute. So let's not be arrogant. Let's not be complacent. Let's not be self-dependent. We need God. We need Him to work. That's why we called the church to come together yesterday and pray. What a joy it was to see handfuls of believers praying and pouring their heart, their heart out to God, asking for Him to work and to do something mighty. I overheard people saying things like, God, we cannot do without You. We need you to work. We need you to move to convince men and women that you are real and that we are undone without you. May we pray this way. May we regularly sing, go to God and sing things like this. I, I need you every hour, most gracious God. I need you every hour. Stay thou nearby. 
temptations lose their power when you are near. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. I need thee every hour. In joy or pain, come quickly and abide, or life is in vain. Men and women, don't just reject this attention to the importance of God's hand of blessing. History shows us that churches naturally tend to decline, to depart, to delay, and to dismiss calls like this one. Ah, just Pastor Brent. It's Pastor Brent got this like strategic plan thing he's like all enthused for. Just give him a few days. Put up with it. Don't just dismiss calls like this one. To declare our, de- our need and dependency on the hand of God to bless our church. The historic First Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota has reminded me of this. 75 years ago, that church, uh, the preacher of that church was a man by the name of William Bell Riley. You can go to Minneapolis, Minnesota, you can see it today. William Bell Riley, powerful preacher and proclaimer of Scripture. Powerful. Church full of faithful believers making a difference in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You go there today to that building, you will find a church where the gospel is absent. No gospel. No belief in an inerrant word without error. It's not there. It's absent. So men and women, we need need God. God decides to act here in and through Colonial Baptist Church. It will be a, a door that no man can close and a work that no one will be able to explain. I just want you to think for a while. Imagine your coworker, your coworker, sitting next to you in one of these seats, worshiping God because the hand of God did it. Imagine your neighbors in your street or your cul-de-sac. Imagine your neighbors sitting here because faithful, anonymous believers spoke and preached Jesus, and God did it. That could be the next few years of Colonial Baptist Church. God is in, it's his business to bring life from death. He's done it before. He can do it again with your coworker, your neighbor. A church that changes the world is blessed by the presence and the power of God. May we pour our hearts out and ask God to do that. Now we need to continue. Finally, the third characteristic of a church that changes the world is that it is led by the ministry of godly leaders. Look in your Bible, and we're going to go pretty quickly through verses 22 through 24. I think that I can uh, speak on them in a quick manner. Look at verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. 
What we learn in this passage is that it's not too long until the church of Jerusalem hears what's going on up in Antioch, 300 miles away. So they send a man. The man's name is Barnabas. This is not his birth name, but a name given to him in adulthood by early believers. The name Barnabas means encourager, and that's exactly what Barnabas was. In Acts, you could have already seen that he had uh, encouraged the church uh, through a large financial gift that he had given to them. He had a, a piece of property, and he sold it, and he gave the entire piece of that property to the church, to leadership of that church, and I'm sure that was a great source of encouragement to the church of Jerusalem as they cared for the poor. He also encouraged Paul. Remember uh, in Acts, he encourages Paul by vouching for him when Paul is a relatively new believer. Paul had been rejected by his former Jewish uh, friends, uh, the, the, the people who persecuted the church, and now the, the church in Jerusalem, they don't believe him either, but Barnabas steps in. He encourages Paul by vouching for him and verifying who he is. In this text, in verse 23, um, we see his activity. It's, it's summarized very easily for us by Luke with four verbs. You get the four verbs, you know what he did. Uh, it says that he came, he saw, he was glad, and he exhorted. <clears throat> That's his activity. Two of those draw my real attention and admiration. First, he saw. See what he saw? He saw the grace of God. This is something that you don't usually say, right, about something that's abstract. It'd be like saying, uh, you see faith or you see love. You don't normally uh, describe it that way. That's something you normally feel or experience. But Barnabas, the text says, saw it. So what shape or form did grace take for him to be able to see it? And the answer is, it took the form of a church. Jew, Gentile, worshiping side by side in love and admiration. So God gave Barnabas great spiritual insight to see beyond normal racial prejudices of his day to the future of the church of God. Other Jews might not have seen the same thing Barnabas saw. But what Barnabas saw was the grace of God. He then exhorted them, and that, that draws my attention as well. He exhorted them. What's, what's the nature of his exhortation? He says, to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. The way this is stated, this is an ongoing activity from Barnabas as a leader in this church. Then he comes and he kept on telling them to press on and remain faithful in one direction, one direction to the Lord. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That's his activity. That's what he does when he comes to the city. He comes, he sees, he's glad, and he exhorts them. But then finally, look at his character that's described in verse 24. It's connected with the word for. These are actually reasons why Barnabas exhorted them the way that he did. So why did he exhort them to remain steadfast to the Lord with faithful character? Well, there are three reasons, and they describe his character. It says, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. You see that? So I just want to look at those very briefly. I wish we had more time. I'm running late. But it says first he's a good man. And I, I ask you, what do you think about that description? Barnabas is a good man. How, how could any man be good? By the time we go back to Luke chapter 18, you remember the story of Jesus with the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler comes to him asking what he would do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus stops him and says, why do you call me a good teacher? Remember this? 
Why do you call me a good teacher? Then Jesus asks the question, how can any man be good? And then he gives an exclamation. No man can be good but God. Okay, so coming to this text, how can Barnabas be good? And I think the answer comes in the next two descriptions. Okay, the only way a man or a woman is good is if they have God. He's full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So the second two, numbers two and three, they kind of expound upon the first one. He's a good man. What do you mean by that, Luke? He's full of the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about that for a moment. Full of the Holy Spirit. Wish we had a lot of time to develop this idea, but I'll just say a few things. To be full of the Holy Spirit is not quantitative in the sense that Barnabas had more of the Spirit of God than others. It's not what that means. It's not like Barnabas had more Holy Spirit than other believers. When any believer becomes converted, they do not receive a part of the Spirit. They get the Holy Spirit in his total personality. In other words, the, the moment, if you know Jesus your Savior, you became a believer at new birth, you got all of the Holy Spirit. So filling means that the Holy Spirit is taking possession of the believer, taking control of the believer's body, soul, spirit, and mind. In a sense, then, the filling of the Spirit initially occurs for us when we're a believer, but it is a repeatable experience and a continuous spiritual state that believers should strive for. See, that's pretty technical. Another way of saying this is that Barnabas was consistently under the control of the Spirit of God. The guiding principle is a believer yields himself regularly to God, confesses his or her sin, and constantly admits his dependence upon God. God's Spirit fills more and more the believer's life, thoughts, and actions. So this is the types of leaders that we need in this church. By, God, by God's grace, may this be true of your pastors. Now, I find it interesting in Acts chapter 6 that this phrase is used in a parallel way. Just flip back a few chapters. Acts 6, look at verse 3. Acts 6, verse 3. Luke says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, listen, full of the Spirit and of wisdom who will appoint for this duty. So when the church is looking for its first deacons, one of the requirements is that they would be controlled by the Spirit of God. In fact, two verses later, you look down at Stephen. Stephen, one of the first deacons. Notice how he's described. And what they say pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen. Listen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Sound familiar? This must not only be true of apostles, it must be true of deacons. Full of the Holy Spirit, under the control of the Spirit, controlled by faith, full of faith. And, uh, you know, we would all say amen to that, right? Pastors, deacons, leaders should be full, controlled by the Spirit. But let me just tell you to be careful what you say amen to. Because a little bit later in the epistles, Paul the Apostle will say this, Ephesians 5, 18. I think many of you might know this verse. He says, do not be drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled 
filled with the Spirit. Who's Paul talking to there? He's talking to believers in the church. And what he does is he takes the adjective full and he makes it an imperative verb that he places upon every believer. Don't be controlled by wine. Be controlled by the Spirit. And so this is important for every one of us. Finally, Luke describes Barnabas as full of faith. He, he was a sort of leader who had rose-colored glasses. He saw everything through faith, confidence, belief that God was working in the world and in the church. This is how he understood the world around him. God was working. This is probably what would compel him to sell his property and give it all to the church. Faith, knowing that God was doing work. This is why, I believe, why, why Barnabas could see God working in Saul when no one else could. It's filled with faith. This is why later on, just a few chapters later, he will vouch for John Mark when others write him off. Failure. Walked away. Not Barnabas. He's faith-filled. He's understanding that his very existence in this world is under the living, dynamic, almighty power of God. God is, is working. And Barnabas' faith is not wavering in that. Instead, faith fills every part of him. So this passage tells us what leaders must have. It's not fancy plans or strategies. It's the God-given goodness of being consistently controlled by the Spirit and being filled with faith that He is doing a work. And so as we close, are we lacking any of these characteristics? Faithful believers speaking and preaching, the hand of God upon our church, godly leaders, spiritful leaders and believers. Let us all examine ourselves today and ask God for His blessing so that our church would be a church that would change the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. As we bow for prayer and self-examination, are you being, are you being faithful to Christ? Faithful to speak, preach to your coworker, neighbor. Faithful, faithful to be under the Spirit's control, confessing sin, declaring dependence, yielding yourself fully to God. Are you in sin? Hiding it. Thinking no one knows. Yeah, but God does. God does. If so, confess areas where you have sinned and are sinning. Then, to confession, ask God to work. We need His hand of blessing with us, not against us. 
Ask God to do a work. Maybe you're here today and you've never turned to Jesus Christ as the only way to be saved. There are texts in Scripture that talk about the tares being among the wheat in the church. There are people, no doubt, under the sound of my voice, who hear all these words, and yet they have never turned to the Lord from their sin. They've never declared their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way for them to be delivered or saved from their sin. So perhaps that's you to hear today. You've been coming for a few months, for a few years, or maybe scores of years, but you don't believe in Jesus alone for your salvation. Won't you turn as well? I've asked God this whole week for His hand of blessing so that some, some people here today for the first time would see they need Christ alone. Won't you do that today as well? I encourage you to pray to the Lord, confess your sin to Him, and declare that you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and that because of that, you are saved. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for everything that you do for us. So I think of those seven churches we started with in Revelation. I wonder how many of them thought that things were just going fine. They've been doing what they'd always been doing. Seemed to be some sort of external fruit. And yet, repeatedly, the condemnation comes. I pray, Lord, that Colonial Baptist Church would not hear condemnation in future judgment, but that we would hear commendation. And may our impulse always be, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. Bless me, my Savior. I come to you. Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.